opinions expressed on ACB Media are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect the views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Welcome in, take my hand, say hello to who you know and who you don't and who you can. We'll give promise to your springtime and beginnings to your ends. We'll try not to be cautious, we'll be friends. Welcome in everyone to Visibilities on February 10th. And it is a wonderful Friday night. We have a great lineup for you this evening. My first thing I want to do is thank Larry Gassman and Cindy LeBon, and everyone else who's been working on uh, our production for tonight. And most of all, I want to thank our guest this evening, is the one and only Mark <laughs> Rikers. <laughs> we won't say thank God, there's only one and only. But <laughs> That's right. That's implied. That's implied. <laughs> Mark has been... Um, Marcos is so far back in ACB. Um, you were director of governmental affairs, was it? Advocacy services. That was the first advocacy director of advocacy services, services in uh, starting in what was that December of 1996, I think. Something like that back in the 90s. I know that. Yeah, it's a long time. Um, back in the back in the days when ACB had advocacy and governmental affairs was just an absolutely amazing place. We had uh, all kinds of uh, incredibly active advocates. Uh, and Mark led up the advocacy. Uh, that was back in the days of the WMATA, um tactile warning strips for the subways. Um, and that led to uh, so much work all over the country. It's interesting you mentioned that, uh, Terry, because I was talking earlier today with somebody about the, the, the ACB protest coming up on currency. And I was thinking, you know, what was the last time I held a held a placard, held a sign that was for the <laughs> thing in 1994? It's going back a few years. And wasn't it you that was carrying the, the casket sign? No, no. I think I think uh, Jim Dixon or somebody of that nature was uh, carrying the casket. <laughs> But I remember, uh, you know, nothing like nothing gets attention like a bunch of blind people uh, standing in front of the uh, subway uh, headquarters chanting granite is for gravestones because they were so enamored with their granite edges on the platforms. They thought that that's all blind people needed to keep themselves safe. So something else. It was, yeah, it was. And the thing was, one of the things was we had really been the major push for those at the time had been um, really, I, I want to say that we kind of mothered it in Massachusetts. Uh, but, <laughs> well, uh, because we had uh, Peggy Kingman McCarthy was killed uh, yeah. on a subway the year before in 1993, in June of 1993. Sure. And uh, Charlie Crawford happened to be commissioner at the time. Yeah. And we just so rallied around that topic at that point. Um, yeah. And we were all so involved. You know, Peggy 
Peggy actually was the one who got my husband and I, who fixed my husband and I up together. And that actually worked out pretty darn well. We get, we're married 50 years this summer. Oh my God. Imagine that. Well, (laughs) I, I know it might seem a little over the top, but I don't think it's too flamboyant to say, I mean, the truth is our, our organization, our community, we've got, uh, we have for sure, we have martyrs, uh, to the cause and people who yes, lost their lives uh, in a very, very real, tangible uh, sense to the ignorance, the stubbornness, the refusal on the part of bureaucracies. And in this case, in D.C., the D.C. system to to do the right thing. And uh, heartbreaking to know that sometimes that sacrifice, if that's the right word, uh, has to happen. Um, but change came. Uh, it did. And that's I, that's I guess where I was going with this is that change came those uh, because there were also the two um, fatalities in New York that same year. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1993. And here we were doing that. Here we were with that demonstration here at WMATA in 1994, one mm-hmm. year later. Mm-hmm. How many years have we been dealing with this whole currency issue? Unbelievable. How many oh, years have we been dealing with? With the special ed issues. Um, it's just incredible when you think about at that time, we could, we could make such an impact inside of a year. And, you know, it's just how so much the world has changed. Well, and that's the thing, Terry, and you're alluding to it now. And I mean, this is the hardest part for those of us who have, you know, we, we're just in love with advocacy and systems change and all that because we're crazy. Uh, but, but, you know, the average person, if I can put it that way, the typical person, it, it's so easy to get discouraged for how long things take to change. And I, I mean, I understand that. And if people don't think that I'm <laughs> tired of talking about this thing that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, this Coswell Macy bill, you're crazy. I mean, I, of course, I'm tired of talking about it. Everything about advocacy takes too gosh darn long. And yet it's only the people who stick with it that actually accomplished the change in our history shows that, that that's exactly what it takes. You're right. Absolutely right. Well, now that we've gotten through a little bit of the past, let's get <laughs> into the, let's get into the, into the present. Um, but any of you who, let me ask let me ask you to do this, Mark, mm. or any of you who missed the um, post that Mark put out on the, I think it was on the ACB leadership list. It was leadership of conversation. I'm not mm-hmm. sure which. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of spilled over onto onto both mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Can you just give people a synopsis of what we were talking, what you were talking about? And um, sure. then we can kind of get into some of the responses that came from <clears throat> that. Sure. So since 1997, there's been an expectation in this country, thanks to you, the special ed law, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA, there is an expectation. In fact, there is a default expectation that if you are talking about a blind or visually impaired kiddo, that youngster, uh, to use an old-fashioned word, uh, is to be provided Braille instruction and should be using Braille unless the IEP, Individualized Education Program, IEP team, that shepherds that student special ed instruction and related services, unless that team determines it's inappropriate for that child based on certain evaluations. So the, bra- the default is that talking about a blind kid, you're talking about Braille. 
And it's one of the strongest uh, requirements of federal law where our community is concerned, special education or otherwise. I mean, I I have searched high up and low down, and I I don't know that there is any other more aggressive, if that's the right word, uh, requirement for a given disability population in federal law to say, hey, if you if you're this type of kiddo, this is what you get, uh, uh, and and that's you set that default. Well, of course, as we all know, um, there's more uh, as as vital, indispensable as Braille is. There's much more that blind and visually impaired folks need, and especially blind kiddos who are needing a special ed, uh, uh, needing special education related services. And that array of services includes low vision device uh, exposure to those devices and how to use them properly and low vision related services and proper evaluations for that child's needs. And that kind of stuff is not available right now in our special education laws. Do some kids get it? Yep. Do most kids get it? Nope. You might say as soon as I say that, well, you know what, Mark, most kids aren't getting Braille either. And you'd be right about that. you know, I made the mistake at one meeting I was at a couple of years ago saying, well, you know what? Uh, there's a Braille requirement on the books, but you know what? There's not an epidemic of Braille instruction in this country. And somebody snapped right back to me and said, but you know what, Mark? There's not an epidemic of low vision services in this country either. And they're absolutely right because because we don't have the right tools. But the challenge that we have is that there are some people who would say, you know what? Uh, if if we as a community really promote low vision services and devices, particularly in the special ed context, that somehow uh, that is going to undermine, rip the rug out from underneath the clear expectation that Braille be provided to students. And for sure, it's going to tap into what I think a lot of us uh, have experienced personally, which is um, even when Braille is absolutely no questions asked, uh, uh, appropriate for me, uh, there may be uh, teachers, administrators, parents who will say, no, nah, we don't need to go that far. Come on, I don't want my child to have to deal with that. After all, they've got a lot of usable visions. So let's try to go that route before we resort to Braille. And I think we have to you know, reckon with the fact that there are those attitudes out there. And Terry, I'll wrap up the little sermon here by saying, I mean, I'm I am one of these people. I mean, not today, but but back in the day. Uh, you know, I mean, I had a mommy who was a fierce advocate, but in spite of the fact that her kid had uh, a fair amount of usable vision, she was uh, bound and determined that her little Mark was going to start getting Braille instruction right away, and uh, you know, boy, was it ever uh, a you know a, a tug of war with the teachers at that time, the school administrators, to make sure that I got Braille instruction. And yet, ultimately, what happened, and I'm so grateful for it, is you know I ended up receiving uh, both Braille instruction as well as low vision related services, which, while temporarily of use to me, and frankly, became of no use to me. <laughs> At an unfortunate time, right in the middle of law school, uh, it talked about a time for the rest of your vision to go away. That really kind of sucked. Uh, I, I guess this is the family show. I shouldn't use expressions like that. <laughs> it was, it was, but it was bad news. And uh, but but so I mean, I you know, I know all the arguments, right? I mean, I know 
for personal as well as the professional advocates experience, what what we're talking about here, the, the real question that I'm trying to wrestle with, as we are now in a new Congress, and it's time to once again, uh, reintroduce this package of special education requirements called the Cogswell Macy Act. Uh, you know, there are forces in our community who would say, we oppose it, we oppose what you're doing, we've opposed what you're doing for years, and primarily we oppose what you're doing because you keep talking about adding low vision devices and services into the mix right alongside Braille. And if you do that, you're undermining Braille. And so, Terry, that was the reason why I, I put the note out to my friends and colleagues here. I don't know any other group of advocates I would trust more with helping at least me, uh, who can be a pigheaded on occasion, uh, once in a while. Uh, uh, you know, uh, gee, is this the right thing to do? Maybe, maybe. Um, Maybe trying to insist that we do this is not what people want. So that was the real reason. That was the inspiration for my post. Get a get a discussion going about are we right? And it wasn't just my idea. I mean, this Cogswell Macy bill has been around for years now, and and, and it's been shopped around. Folks in ACB have talked about. It. We have a gazillion resolutions on the subject. The professionals in the field, with whom, of course, I'm involved on a volunteer basis, the AER folks and others, they've weighed in. I, I, everyone and their sister and brother has looked at this and there is a broad consensus that we are you know, at least theoretically doing the right thing by adding low vision services and devices into the mix alongside the braille requirement which we are not touching we're leaving that default in place we're simply adding low vision and devices low vision devices and services into the mix but some people think that even doing that uh, causes trouble so anyway that was the motivation for what i did and, and it just seems to me, in reality, by not including the low vision services and devices, we're actually cheating those kiddos mm. out of the potential to learn, to, to, to experience and to learn from low vision, uh, to, and to learn with low vision. Uh, services and devices. Yeah. I grew up, I'll, I'll just say for, for, as an example, um, I grew up, went through grammar school and junior high um, in what back in those days was called a sight saving class. Yeah. And it was all, it was all um, people with low vision. Yeah. And ironically, and this is why I think that it's so important to include uh, these to, to include the low vision services and devices. The best I've been able to, I've lost track of a few people, and mm. I know a few that have passed away since. Mm. But over the course of the um, what's five, seven years, seven years that uh, I was in that, that I was either in or working out of the through that classroom, mm. about thirty of us all together were went through that program. Mm -hmm. And somewhere around five or six have actually ended up um, losing their vision. And, mm -hmm. and Braille became their, you know, one of their primary medium at the time. I'm sure a good number of them. But that, those other 25 or so are still people with low vision. Yeah. And those, you know, if it hadn't been for my mother fighting with me um, <laughs> yeah. when I was in high school to mm -hmm. learn Braille, um, I probably never would have. Mm -hmm. And which would not have affected 
most of my of my life of my career mm-hmm. most of my career i didn't i wasn't using braille um in no. the long run it's worked out extremely well for me sure uh, of course first one because my husband's totally blind so at least we could leave notes for you know we could leave notes for each other that kind of thing right as in, and, take out the trash, you nitwit. Yeah, yeah that kind of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I won't be home for dinner. <laughs> right, right, right. You're on your own. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But and the other and the other thing too is that I ended up as that I've ended up in the position I have with the FCC, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. Um, was uh, basically because I knew Braille. Uh, right, of course. You know, that kind of thing. But it was, you know, it really wasn't, it wasn't something that I needed in order to get through college and my career. But it was, but it was a very good additional skill to have. Well, and that's, I didn't and see it that way when I was in high school at all. Of course not. And, and that's, and that's the point of all of it. And that's why the most important word in the name of our special education law is the word individualized the individuals with disabilities education and and a lot of people do not understand uh and sometimes i think they deliberately choose not to understand to be quite frankly with you uh they they don't understand that the law is not an american foundation for the blind or now an american printing house for the blind you know, textbook on the foundations of education for blind kids. The law is not about, you know, this is what the orthodoxy is on education of blind kids. What the law is about is a set of tools for advocates, primarily parents, but it's not limited to them, to use to defend and protect and advance the rights of their kiddos who are, who are in need of special ed and related services. And every one of those children is going to be different. And part of the problem that we have sometimes, and this is the thing that, look, reasonable people can disagree about stuff, okay? But the thing that fries me about these discussions uh, is that sometimes people decide to impose certain philosophies, certain ideologies on what kids need. And inevitably what that means is they want to hold back certain things from kids. When, when, When those kind of ideologies are put in place, you never really see those ideologies saying, oh, yes, let's make sure they have everything. No, no, no. These are people who have decided, I know what's best, or we know what's best for blind children, regardless of how much vision they have or where they are in life or whatever. And because of our ideology, we intend to hold certain things back from you, because if you had them, you would be tempted to actually use them. And I, I just, the arrogance of that and the presumptive presumptuousness of that is personally offensive to me, but just as a matter of nerdy public policy, that's not how the world works. That's the law is about putting tools, as many tools as we can, in the hands of advocates, and that's why I think it's important to include the low vision stuff. I think you're absolutely right, and I know that I have had an, uh, more than one argument with um, people who get into the whole thing about. I've had people say to me that people with low vision cannot possibly be as smart as a person who's totally blind because a person who's blind can read Braille better than a person with low vision. And so the person with low vision obviously is not going to be able to keep their attention on it as well. 
which was about the most ridiculous argument I think I've ever heard. Um, yeah. the, the only response you know, I have to that is whatever. Whatever. <laughs> yeah, really. Whatever. Yeah, my response to it is of that class that I'm talking that I was in, we had um, two college professors, mm-hmm. a, a psychologist, a, a, psychi- a psychologist, yeah. um, two extremely success, three extremely successful vendors, um, mm-hmm. a, an engineer, um, and, yeah. and just a number of different people who ended up in careers that had they not had that service, they probably never would have been a million years um, ended up in, in the, uh, you know, or far fewer of them would have ended up in the types of careers and in the very successful careers that they did have. Well, right. And, and the rap yeah. is and, and that's that, if, that, that if people who are blind receive Braille instruction, that folks who know Braille are more employed, et cetera. I, the people who have looked at the data, I, now I'm not one of them, but people who are research scientists who have looked at that data say, you know, don't, not, you know, not so fast. There's not necessarily a lot of scientific research that would support that. But let's just have fun. Let's say that there is scientific research to support that people who know Braille are more likely to be employed. Great. That has absolutely nothing to do with whether a child, a K through 12 age student who is living with vision loss, should, you know, should they have every opportunity to have every conceivable means by which they can learn and participate in the general education curriculum? I, I mean, hopefully we all say yes to that. And hopefully we understand that by doing that and saying yes to Braille and yes to low vision and the whole rest of it, frankly, O&M, career ed, assistive technology generally, uh, self-advocacy, I mean, the whole thing that, you know, the blindness uh, educator nerds would call the expanded core curriculum. If we're talking about that, I don't know why we would ever want to, to close those opportunities off for kids. I, it seems like a no-brainer to me. But. You, you and me both. And I think you've got a few people that would like to chime in on this as well. So let's if you're it. up for it, let's go with it because we've got at least four hands raised. I'm never it. up for it. I, I'm, I'm shy. I, don't, <laughs> I know how much you just hate to talk. I hate people. it. I hate it. Lori Scharf. Good evening. I've never heard of her either. Oh, <laughs> I don't know who you are either. <laughs> I know. I know. Thank you, ma'am. Good to how hear you, are you? Um, as yucky as I sound with a cold. Um, so I, um, I have to say that I really think that Braille is important, but we need to be realistic of the, uh, skills and techniques available to and and the additional disabilities that youth of today are experiencing Mm -hmm. and we need to look at the available technology that's out there that you know has was not out there in the past and we need to look at the importance of specialized schools for the Mm -hmm. blind as a resource new york state um Several of the chapters of in New York State are currently working with the New York Vision Rehabilitation Association to 
request that the governor in New York State restore $2 million of funding that she has cut from the 4201 schools. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's important to follow as part of your state budget any specialized funding for special ed or 4201 schools where blind and low vision children with additional disabilities may go. Um, You know, we have a school on Long Island that um, specifically is designed for children with significant physical disabilities. And at Mm. that particular school, a large percentage of those children also have cortical visual impairments and benefit Mm, from low vision devices. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it Braille should not be seen as an option for many of them. Several of them don't even have hands or arms that they can use. So, you know, we need to keep in mind those types of things and and as advocates always be standing on the front line not because it's something that we will benefit from, but that somebody else who will come after us will benefit from. Thank you. Well, I love your last point, Lori, because I mean sometimes there is a poverty in the in the discussions among the adults and i mean look i'm 53 years old a lot there's a lot of folks who are older than me on this uh, call yeah a lot of older folks who have been involved in advocacy and blindness for a lot longer than me who are both in terms of time and and age are older and sometimes that when i use the word poverty sometimes the focus is always on you know well this is what worked for me it's all about me it's what i want this is my ideology it's what our consumer organization feels mm-hmm. instead of keeping the focus on it might have worked amazingly for me it might even be what our consumer organization happens to feel as a you know passionate articulated position for decades but how about we start thinking about somebody else keep the focus outward on that individual child that that, that is such a Wow, I, I I love that last. Advocacy point should never be about you. It should be about the community I, as a whole. And uh, if I mean, you're exactly. doing advocacy because it will benefit you, you're dreaming. Because very yeah, often, right. by the time it comes to fruition, that yeah, you're gone. Your ship has set sail. <laughs> Correct. That's, there's a lot of wisdom in that. Well, thanks. Thank you, Lori. Um, I don't want to move things along, but I think I need to this evening because there really are a lot of people Mm. Um, with hands raised. Christine Hunsinger. Good evening. If you want to. Okay. Hi there. There you are. Um, I I just wanted to say that I think one of the problems that we as older visually impaired kinds of people have is that we didn't grow up with anywhere near as many of the multiple multiply impaired kids in school with us. Mm. So we sort of don't think about them. And the other thing is, we don't think about the person who doesn't have the intellectual strength that we who are sitting here talking have. Yes. Because, you know, there are people that when I was in school that were in the ungraded class, okay, I could tell that there were people who were dyslexic. I didn't know what that word was. But yeah. they read things backwards, right? Yeah. Um, and I could tell that there were people who were 
um, who had other issues, and and yet that was like a tenth of what there is now. Uh, and we don't see those people because how are you going to get someone who's not at the intellectual level we are discussing constitutional amendments uh, to the by- and bylaw amendments of, of ACB. That person isn't heard in our organization yeah. very often. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and we really have to think about those kids and mm-hmm. they, you know, there are visual learners, there are tactile learners, there are audible learners. And my mother wouldn't let me use a talking book machine until I was Going into sixth grade, she said, "You will learn Braille before you." Before See, this you... is what I'm talking about. Yep, yeah. I can relate. Yep, yep. So we really do have to think about, and and although it's the default, that doesn't mean it has to be. And if there's a child who would far better, as long as it's the child who is driving the the child's abilities that are driving the decision making, I don't care what the decision is, yeah. as long as it's not the school's. Uh, bank book that's driving it and you know that happens too oh no question that's an excellent point no question about it yep and that's all i have to say that's great thanks christine area code 608 you can unmute if you would please hi this is peter heidi um i i really uh, want would love to see this go through that one of the things that that um, I have learned in my life is that um, I lost my sight that the first when I was nine, eight years old in back in 1960. And uh, I happened to be fortunate enough to know a blind man that lived across the street from my grandparents who immediately set, made a set of flashcards for me in Braille and that I was able to enter into my uh, class then in January um, at the School for the Visually Handicapped in Wisconsin mm-hmm. and um, was able to keep up with my class because I got that information right away. Mm. When, I got my, when I got my site back when I was 18, <laughs> there was nothing that everybody assumed that because I could see that I could function and that it took seven years for me to learn that um, I did not have the muscle movement that allowed my eye to move smoothly to be able to mm-hmm. read. I didn't have a reading vocabulary. Um, mm-hmm. all, all of this stuff is um, going on. Yeah. And and that um, that with different different kinds of visual acuities that you have all kinds of learning styles that need to be addressed, and that. If we don't give the partially sighted uh, people the tools that they need, then yes, they will be considered as second class uh, learners and yep. thought to be less um, intellectual or less smart than than their totally blind um, um, uh, cohorts. Anyway, yep. that. Um, I mean, it is so essential that, yes, Braille, Braille, I think, needs to be given um, if you have any chance of having a degenerative yep. eye disease that Braille should be taught. But um, there are just so many technologies out there for, for visually impaired people that mm. uh, it's, it's, I think it needs to be required. Yep. Thank you. Yep. Thank you very much. That's Thank really helpful. You. Donna Browning. 
Good evening. Good evening. Um, I personally think that um, every child, if they want it, should have the opportunity to learn Braille. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, um, I think it maybe even should be required to, it, at least if you have a visual impairment and you're considered legal blind, you should at least try to learn it. If you don't mm -hmm. use it, that's up to you. Yep. Um, because I never got the opportunity, um, and I really should have. I had to ask my roommate to help me, and I did learn some of it. Um, and I saw what a benefit it was. I, I have been working as an adult now to try to learn the rest of it. Uh, I wished I could have learned it much younger. I think it would have helped me better in school. Um, when I went to public school, you know, instead of having to deal with these papers of the blueprint that you could already see on a white background and, and it was faded. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. And and then when I have to do speaking engagements like in church, the brand would be a wonderful thing right now instead of me having to hold my paper up. Now yep. I have to yep. make the print so big the pay how many page <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Ends up I being know. a lot of pages just to give my talk. And mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I just I, I, I think that Braille, along with anything else that could help that child, should be given to them. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when I went there, they didn't have an IEP for me. Uh, and and, and they, somebody came to me once a year. She tested me by having me read the license plates on cars in the parking lot. Oh, for gosh. Yeah. And then, she, and then when I told her I was struggling with, Algebra. Oh well, your your grades are you're you're passing. I'm passing. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it, it was it was very frustrating. And I I I do the advocacy now because I don't want children to who are gonna come after me to go through the crap that I've gone through. Mm -hmm. Good for you. I'm smiling at you when you talk about uh <laughs> your papers and presenting in church. So of course, I mean, I loved music from, from day one. When I was five years old, went off to start to try to take piano lessons. And mm -hmm. look, in spite of my dedication, you know, my mom was super dedicated to Braille. I was always into it. I don't know. I'm a nerd. I mean, I like codes. I thought it was cool. And yet, you know, you go to a, a, a piano teacher, you know, just a <laughs> Typical, we're not talking about, you know, Rachmaninoff here as your teacher. We're talking about just an average lady who was awesome, turned out to be incredible. But you just find, she doesn't know Braille, uh, uh, Braille music. She wouldn't know how to teach it. I'm not even entirely sure I would have been open to the idea. And I, <laughs> I remember trying to learn when the saints go marching in, she had these huge, like, you know, like the big pieces of paper today that people put up on the walls during meetings, right? She would take those kind of side sheets of paper and write on them with this really thick, dark marker, the letters of the keys, you know, G, whatever, C, E, G. And, you know, oh. she'd write these in. I was supposed to try to squint at that while I'm playing at the piano. I just, I remember that. So just thinking. So I mean, <laughs> anyway, yeah, that's, that's your little story. I had a teacher in the blind school trying to teach me with regular music. Yeah. Well, there you go. Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> Jane. <clears throat> Hello, this is, this is Jane Perry from Falmouth, Massachusetts on Cape Cod. Hello. What a great subject. Um, I was in public school and Main Street all my life and went to college. And now I don't have any vision, age of 66. And mm -hmm. 
I think it's great that this is happening, and I think people should have the opportunity to learn Braille, the opportunity to have any kind of low vision ex uh, and equipment or a note taker or <laughs> book share, anything of those things that can help them. I always, I never passed an eye test in my life, but back then the doctors didn't know anything about retinitis pigmentosa, <clears throat> but I always sat in front of the class. And when I, when the teacher called on me to read, I said, please don't call me. Please don't call me to read anything. Mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. But anyways, my life would have been 100% better. I wouldn't have to struggle. Now, is this something that is going to be reintroduced, or is this a bill already happening? Well, it's going to be. It's been reintroduced uh, several times in the past Congresses, and now, you know, here we are in the 118th Congress, which just convened. You know, and so now uh, every two years, when you get a bill introduced, all the bills right. that didn't move anywhere they go away, so you have to reintroduce them. So it gives us an opportunity to refine the uh -huh. text of the bill, and we are looking at ways in which we can maybe juice up the Coghill Macy bill. Because let's face it, I mean, there is a, I, I confessed to this group earlier that there's a bit of a fatigue with this bill and yours truly, who's kind of the the poppy of this bill. Even even I am a little tired of this kiddo. Uh, so I, maybe I it's time to maybe kind of roll roll the dice a little bit here. And uh, let's, 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 uh, let's, let's put some Let's put some Tabasco sauce in this bill and get some attention right. for it, because it's about time to do something a little bit more aggressive, I think. I agree 100% with you. The only thing I don't like is the word special education. Oh, I, um, I hear you. I mean, it's a it is a very I, old I term. went to public schools and was mainstream, and they were the, there was the room for the special ed kids, and there was the room for the regular kids. Mm -hmm. And now I don't like that, because we can learn from each other, I believe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think teachers can learn from other students that have a problem, whether it's a physical disability or emotional disability. But um, yes, I know it'll be reintroduced, but I didn't know if it's been reintroduced yet because nope. I hope to get my, my Congress people sign on to it because I think it's so important for kids to have the correct tools so they can succeed in life because I was diagnosed at the age of 31 and didn't learn Braille since I was almost 32, so. Yep, yep. Well, God love you. We'll be with we'll you. Be Keep up the fight there, kiddo. Appreciate oh, yeah, it we'll very go. much. Bye-bye. Right, Thanks, Jane. Um, veteran Doc. There you are. Good evening. Good evening. Well, my case is maybe a little different, but I'm a very strong advocate for the teaching of Braille. Mm. I did not learn Braille until I was 50. Hmm. It, um, you know, intellectually, Braille is a snap to learn. Tactically, that takes, uh, you know, quite a bit more. But I, I think younger children adapt to it more easily than older folks. Yeah. I did teach uh, Braille, get people started, and then got them off to Hadley or someplace like that. Oh, good. Have and you. unfortunately, uh, I fell off of a ladder in 1995 and broke both arms and wrists. Now oh my God. I have peripheral oh. neuropathy. Oh. And so now that I'm deprived of Braille, yeah. I really see how important it is. I don't, you know, I have uh, retinitis pigmentosa, so I, I, 
went through the long progression, been legally blind since 1970. But I, I, I just think it's so important and really endorse, you know, what you're trying to do. And I think every tool that you have is so important. You know, it's, yep. it's not a case of uh, that you use it every day, but, but I hear so many people talking about even coupling Braille with the technology. Sure, of course. And, yep. and technology is never going to be able to take the place of all of the things that you want to do. Yeah. Because um, in many cases, it's the encoding rather than the decoding. Yes, you're right about that. That's, That's so true. important. That's absolutely right. And, and, so, and the, uh, the teachers and others, you know, and I'm, as I say, I'm not one, I'm just a policy nerd, but the, the, the teachers and others talk about children uh, who are so-called dual media kids. And of course, the, the, the truth is there's a heck of a lot of those kiddos out there who should be getting Braille, the law says they should, and they're not necessarily getting competent low vision related evaluations and low vision related services and skills and if they got both which a lot of kids aren't getting either quite frankly uh yeah. holy mackerel they would be so prepared uh to do and 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 look at you you're a you're a you're a uh, if, uh an object lesson in why it's important to to be equipped with all those skills so thank you for that well i wish i still had it i i taught Oh, I'm sure you do. 31 years, and I, I I know how important it is to have every tool that you can get your hands on in your tool mm -hmm. chest. And yep. uh, I, I just have great admiration for the work that you're doing, and and I just hope and pray you'll be successful and that uh, Congress will see fit to enable the children of America <laughs> to have a much better and stronger life. And in just a few minutes, I'm going to take a couple more calls, and then in just a few minutes, I'm going to ask ask Mark to tell us just what we can do yeah. to, to push this ahead. Yeah. In the meanwhile, we have Peter, and I'm assuming I know which Peter it is, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> this, is the, this is the Peter from Columbia, Missouri. Hey, Mark. That's the one I thought it was. <laughs> Yeah. So listen, you never know who might come showing up at these. That's meetings. right. You yeah. never know. Strange things happen. And um, Mark, I want to, I want to, I want to do a thought experiment, but it's only a partial thought experiment. You talk about rolling sure. the dice. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. suggest you not, you not uh, admit the bill at all. And the reason is, we're. This is this is my take of the of the land of the uh, situation we find ourselves in. We find ourselves in a in a in a federal government, especially where. Things aren't the same as they were 30 years ago when the ADA passed with the bipartisan thing and, and, and Republican George W. H.W. Uh, uh, Bush signed it. We're in a very fractious uh, uh, place where, uh, you know, Republicans simply are not going to and the national level are not going to support something like this. And I think we're just banging our head against the wall. I think what we should be doing. Go ahead, Terry. I was going to say, but let me let me ask you something. Both. Yeah. Both the Rehab Act of 73 and the ADA were passed 
when uh, under Republican administrations. But, but but the Republicans now are different from the way they were. They are different as as and, 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 Democrats. And that's, that's my point. So here, but here's what I'd like to at least throw on the table as as a possibilities. I think your average conservative these days would say that education is not a federal mandate. It is a state mandate. And I think we should be thinking about how can we work with states to deal with this stuff, state legislators. More effectively, how can we work with local people? How can we find those schools that are doing a great job and using them as, as, uh, as, as role models to encourage other people to do the same kinds of things? I just think that banging your head against the wall with federal legislation like this, as good as it is, I support it, absolutely support it. And I support the whole idea of, you know, uh, high partial aids and all that. I just think that we're going about this the wrong way. I love your question. I don't necessarily disagree with your, uh, the, the, your, your partisan thesis and maybe some people who are on the call or maybe listening now or in the future out there and in America, uh, might be disappointed <laughs> me when I when I say that uh, you know my personal politics would tend to totally agree with that. Let let me give you a a policy nerd's perspective on this. And Terry, this falls right into your uh, desire to figure out you know what do we do next. Um, so this Cogswell Macy bill is super long. There are three. So okay. Maybe everybody knows this, but just since we're on the record, uh, the bill is called the Alice Cogswell and Ansel and Macy Act. So named for the first deaf girl who was educated formally in the U.S. At, uh, oh, gosh, I'm having a moment here. The American, I bet Laurie Scharf would know. The, uh, this, uh, the, anyway, there's a school in New York uh, that's been around for over 200 years. She was educated there. And, of course, Annie Sullivan, Helen Keller's teacher. So we thought that naming it for those two people was illustrative of, you know, the purpose of this bill is to um, support kiddos and to also then advance the role of teachers and uh, special ed personnel like folks who we would call today interveners, who are people who work with deafblind uh, youth. So in, in any case, we, we introduced this bill years ago. The bill goes on and on and on, page after page, because there are three major sections, a deafness section, a blindness section, and a deaf blindness section. And if you printed this thing out, and heaven help you if you printed it out in Braille, because <laughs> you wouldn't be able to lift the thing up, you'd be able to do calisthenics with it. I mean, there's an awful lot of redundancy in this bill. I mean, there are sections that are literally copied almost word for word two or three times over. And you say, well, that seems kind of dumb. Why did you? Because the whole purpose of this bill was to be primarily a so-called message bill, which is to say we introduced this in Congress to make sure that everybody, not on whatever side of the aisle, whichever side of the hill, House or Senate, that you may be, where you ever you may be, uh, is going to know what the blindness, deafness, deaf blindness community want from our federal government and how we want to spend the you know billions, literally billions of dollars that we invest federally into special education. So this mess, it, it is, if that's, when I say it's a message bill, that's not to say that we don't intend for any of this language to actually become law. Of course we do. I mean, it, it would be foolish, right? But when would it become law? Well, it would become law if the Congress were to ever deign to 
open up and amend and improve our national special education law. The last time they did that was in 2004, at least in any major way. There have been some little technical amendments here and there as other things have changed. They needed to kind of update it just to make it technically conform with other things. But this this legislation stands as a a beacon for not only the members of Congress, but also for advocates and consumers, of course, to say, this is what we believe. We think that every kiddo with a sensory disability needs to properly be properly identified and counted and evaluated. Here's what we mean when we say, you know, what are the evaluations that are appropriate for these kids? And here's what we mean by appropriate services for those kids and how we sustain those services with the right personnel. And then we say that in this legislation, knowing that, quite frankly, we may very well be waiting another number of years before the Congress is prepared to actually open up the special education law. And you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, what do you mean they've, they've taken 19 years? Good grief. Uh, how long are we going to be waiting? And why aren't they opening it up? And so, Peter, exactly to your point, right, it is because a lot of advocates, including yours truly and all of us in the blindness community, have said we are not prepared to go full tilt on pushing this unless we have colleagues across the disability community who say it's a safe environment in which we can propose changes to our national special education law such that we're not going to open up Pandora's box and let right. people who don't agree with us to do mischief. So then you yeah. say, okay, Mark, I have a, you know, I, Mark, I understand everything you just said. And that sounds lovely. And it sounds very academic. And I can see that you're a policy nerd. Good for you. But nothing's going to get done in the meantime. And you know what I would say to that? Then whoever, and, and that's, you didn't say that. I'm putting words in your mouth. But let's say someone did say that. I would say then to that person, sir, madam, you're wrong. And you know how I know that? Because in this bill, the deafblind folks have language in there all over the place about promoting the role of interveners, just like Amy Sullivan, right? That kind of person who can be a support to a deafblind child. And, you know, you remember uh, this past December when everybody was talking about how the previous Congress was rolling to an end and, uh, gosh, they were shoving through this massive spending bill. And, you know, a lot of us have different feelings about that and the partisanship of that and all the rest of it. Well, you know what? Because of the Ansel of the Macy bill, and because we have had an, a national movement of blindness, deafness, and deaf blindness uh, making the case for all of these services, the deaf blindness folks got a million dollars tucked away in that omnibus bill to, to prepare and promote interveners. And it's a direct outcome from this effort. So the short answer, Terry, <laughs> to your question about what, what we can do is the purpose of this bill is to keep standing as the, you know, we're waving the flag. This is the standard that we've planted in the ground thus far and no more. This is what we want. And various pieces of it are going to get peeled off and will help us promote the things that we want and maybe circumstances politically from a partisan point of view the winds may change and we will find opportunities to move various things but in the meantime we are able to use this bill 
to promote everything that we say we want. And so, you know, how can people help? Well, you know, I mean, some people said, hey, count on me when the bill gets reintroduced. Yep. When the bill gets reintroduced, for sure, there's going to be opportunities for people to call their House and Senate members and say, please co-sponsor it. Quite frankly, that should be an easy lift for every member of Congress. They hear from their constituents who say co-sponsor the Cosmo Macy bill. You know, many of them have in the past. Let's hope we can get more in the future. Every one of those additional co-sponsors helps us make the case for why we need not only a million dollars for interveners, but why we need more money to prepare more teachers, why we need to change some of the rules around evaluation and to make sure that we protect that continuum of services in special schools like Lori Sharp was talking about. All, every one of those requests for a member of Congress to support this bill helps us go into Congress and also the U.S. Department of Education to say, look, it isn't just little pitiful, chubby nerd Mark Reichert who wants this. There's a whole nationwide movement interested in this. And y'all, it, it, it's, we need to get cracking on improving services for our people. Mark, can, I, can, can I say something very quickly, Terry? I don't want to. Very, very quickly, because okay. we've got six I minutes know. left and three so, calls. So my, my basic comment is, Mark, I think you've really given a really good answer. I hope that in addition to what you're talking about, that we can find examples of where things are being done right, that we can we, we can add to that advocacy effort. I I th that's the one thing that appears to be missing. In this I agree with you. That's it, all I it, you're say. right about Thank you, no, you're right about you're absolutely right about that. And I'm not even sort of being argumentative with you. I I, I think I, and this is a tendency of all advocates. And I, I fall victim to this, too. Right. You're trying to paint a, uh, a a picture of we've got to act now. The house is on fire. And in the meantime, you're not pointing out the positive examples to say, here's what uh, a quality education looks like uh laurie sharf and i are involved in an activity relating to defending special services in um the state of west of uh, of south dakota and you know one of the, the 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 criteria that we can point to to say look here's why you know we are right or here's why the parents in south dakota are right is because we know what quality services look like y'all have been doing it for a good long while and here's uh, how we do it anyway Thanks. Thank you. Ray I appreciate I, I appreciate that. That's really yep. really wonderful. Yeah, good. Ray Campbell, you have one minute. <laughs> I'm afraid that's it. Yes. There we go. Now there now I'm unmuted. There I, you I, are. I had a button and it said something about just something was disabled, so I don't know what was going on. Yeah, something I don't know what just something just happened. I don't know either. But anyway, I'm not showing let, anybody's let me, anything now. Let me be quick here. And say that, uh, Mark. I, 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 you've been. I know you've been passionate about this since I chaired the what was then the Schools for the Blind Task Force, uh, and probably yep. even before that. Yep. Um, I think that one of the things we can take advantage of is that over the last couple of years, and whether you agree or disagree with them, parents have been stronger advocates with their schools about various mm -hmm. things, and I think that this might be a time that we can try to engage parents of blind and visually impaired kiddos to really be the advocates for their kids, just like they would advocate for their other children for on, on other things within the school system. And that's all I really wanted to say. I think it's a great idea. 
and we've had uh, uh, NAPFI, National Association of Parents of Visually Impaired Children, whatever they I get scrambling their name. They, they've kind of uh, faded into a bit of history, but hopefully we can empower them. Uh, our friends in the National Federation of the Blind have a super robust parents group. I'm not entirely sure that we share the same views on on uh, the core issue here on low vision related. But you know what? As I've said to our friends in the NFB, uh, including their leading policy staff, uh, look, what, maybe we just agree to disagree on that. I mean, look, I mean, life is too short. Perhaps there are other things, and there frankly is a lot in the Cogswell-Macy bill that we should be working on together. So even if we can't uh, uh, agree on on this business of what legislative language to add relating to low vision, perhaps there are other things we can work on together. Okay, I'm going to interrupt for just a minute because we're almost out of time. And mm. just ask, would it be, does anybody have a problem with Mark in particular? Um, staying on for an extra few minutes, maybe five or 10 minutes. We've got three more people that would like to talk with you. Um, I, I mean, I, you know, I, I do have, I do have my, my every Friday evening salsa dancing lessons. Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot all about your salsa dance. Yeah. But, 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 you know, but this is much more important than that. So I'd be happy to stay, stay with <laughs> all you. All right. Then let me just um, thank everyone who's joined us tonight on Visibilities on Media One. <laughs> and next week we are going to have, um, now his name just went from my head. Matthew Peckett and uh, Peter, Peter Tusick. Tusick. And Peter Tusick yep. from Humanware on the new Victor 3. They are going to be launching. Uh, oh, the, the most that I heard was that they uh, will be launching it right around that time. Next week. And so you yes. should be next week. Yes. Yeah. So we should have all kinds of information about that next Friday night.